Hello and welcome to another episode of the Travelling Through podcast. I am Emma, your podcast host, and each week I'm out and about chatting to Londoners and those who love, live and work in this big and glorious city. In this episode, my podcast guest is Jennifer Wallace. Jennifer and I have known each other forever, it seems. And although our lives have led us in completely different directions, we are now both in London. So it was a perfect opportunity to catch up, walk and talk about London, her travels to Greece and India, her love of the romantic poets and Hellenism, and her books, Digging the Dirt, her novel Digging Up Milton, set in the Barbican's Cripplegate Church, and which some of you may remember she Q&A'd at the bookshop in 2016, I think. And of course, we talk about her latest non-fiction book, Tragedy, since 9-11. This was a very uplifting and thought-provoking conversation, and I hope you find it so too. Enjoy. Hello, good morning. Today we are on Hampstead Heath. This is the Travelling Through podcast, and I'm with Jennifer Wallace, who I've known since I was about nine years old, I think. Is that right, Jennifer? Something like that. Six, seven, eight. And our fathers went to school together in in Edinburgh, but you were born in London. Mm. And uh, and then you you came the family your family came back up to Edinburgh when I was about twelve thirteen was it oh yeah and that's when um, that's we when saw each other more more regularly we did uh, ice, the badminton, ice, badminton badminton court that's right and highly competitive games <laughs> it was very competitive and ice skating as yes. well yes <laughs> charades and card games and that's true at New yes. Year we used to come round to you at New Year sometimes. Maybe we should stick to the path as I haven't got my walking boots on here. But we're going to take a, an amble around Hampstead Heath, which is, I was just having a quick look to see what facts I could glean about what Hampstead Heath means to people. And, and it's four miles north of, of London, or just under four miles, I think, uh, north of Westminster, really. Yes, and in fact, it's celebrating its 150th year of um, being in common ownership. Is it? This year, yes. So the Hampstead Heath Act, which ensured that this would be for the use of the local people. Yes. Uh, And it's not a park, therefore, it's a heath. It's a heath, yes. uh, means a different set of rules and regulations. Okay, because there's also forest and meadow and and ponds. Yes. Including swimming ponds. Yes. So we're just actually passing here the first of the swimming ponds, although the last to be created into a pond. I think we might just wait for Heath Rangers to go by. Yeah, so this is the the mixed swimming pond for all genders. It's actually quite open to the elements and and for for people to watch the swimmers here, isn't it? Yes, you can see it from this causeway. Yeah. And yet the other two ponds, the, the more secluded. Yes. Yes. Well, they were created first in the uh, Victorian period, and they're segregated. Okay. Um, male only and female only. I think you've tried to persuade me to go swimming in the in the ladies' pond a couple of times, but I think it's always been too cold, and I, I am, uh, I'm too much of a wimp. Right. I should really try it. <laughs> yes, you should, because it's it's actually really lovely when you get in. Do you, Do you swim in the winter? Uh, no, I d- I'm a kind of, uh, yeah, spring, summer and early autumn swimmer, but not a winter swimmer. Not so May to end of September is my season. Okay. <laughs> so but I don't really go when it gets lower than 12 degrees. Okay, but that's still pretty chilly, isn't it's it? It's quite, yes. Bracing. Yes. <laughs> and when it is that cold, how long can you stay in? 
about 10 minutes or something yeah. because Fast actually swimming. yes it's usually that cold at the start of the season okay. uh, you know in because it takes takes longer to warm up so yeah. may it's 12 degrees and at that point when you go in you haven't been swimming for six months so you you know you have to let your body adjust yes. to it slowly yes yes i get your muscles and I, I actually fit. have a a short wetsuit which the really serious swimmers don't have. I feel slightly defeatist about it, but yeah, <laughs> it covers my core, not my okay. legs and my arms. I think I would have the right the way down, <laughs> my wrists and over my feet if possible. Right. Well, it's a difficult, people say sometimes, you know, you get colder standing around taking your wetsuit off slowly than if you just plunge in and then have a yeah, quick uh, swim. A, a quick swim and then dry quickly afterwards. Yes. So I, it's a. Uh, difficult. I just today. had a quick look on the on the website and there's this fantastic lovely old film of the ladies in the, the ladies pond diving into the into the pond and showing the temperature under 14 degrees centigrade and they're, they're all in the the old Victorian style swimming costumes they're like shorts aren't they? Right yes little shorts. And like vest face. tops yes and and they all wear swimming hats is that compulsory? People, no, no no it's not I mean now um, the really serious, you know, through the winter swimmers sometimes wear hats and they definitely wear gloves and booties, even though they don't wear wetsuits. Right. So they, yeah, keep the extremities warm. Okay. Very Whereas wise. I do the opposite philosophy of keeping the core warm with my, with your, with my wetsuit. Yeah, yes. And, and the ladies pond has a sunbathing meadow, which has a whole kind of social scene of its, uh, of its own. Okay. Which women only. Only, okay. And um, it's really nice to go with a book in the summer and sometimes people take picnics and yes yes and it's very much for the locals although it's become more and more popular to it's getting yes all over london um yes and just in the last couple of years partly because of the increased popularity and partly because um because of covid yes they've started a booking system okay and um, restricting numbers right which um those of us who knew it before kind of objected to, but I can understand the point because of the, the increased numbers. Yes, yes. They've also doubled the price, which is much more controversial. So how much does it cost to go swimming in the pond? So it's just over four pounds okay. for a swim. For as long as you like? Uh, no, for an hour's slot now with this booking system. Oh, I see. Okay, so um, you can stay as long as you like on the sunbathing meadow, but there's only an hour's <laughs> slot for swimming. <laughs> okay. You can actually... Um, book several slots so you could pop in and out but um, but you'd have yes. to pay four pounds each time uh, yes or if you buy a season ticket which is what I did this year yeah um, but yeah previously uh, the charge was voluntary okay. rather than compulsory yeah and it was two pounds so it's literally doubled, oh, in price. doubled so, yes. and people are, there's actually a court case at the moment about this is it yes that this is infringement on human rights to swim okay access to human to open water and also contrary to the rules of the 1871 Hampstead Heath Act which made the the whole place you know available to the people so so it's being it's being you know litigated at the moment yes yes and because I suppose it is it is wild swimming in a way isn't it exactly yes it's not sanitized no. anyway but they have lifeguards there so okay so the city of london is um yeah 
supporting a lifeguard system and now they're supporting uh, people checking that you've actually paid uh, <laughs> staffing as well. Oh so. really? Okay. <laughs> to stop people coming through the bushes. And exactly. Can, can you actually, I suppose there are ways. You probably could, yeah. Mm. But it's, it's hard. Yes. So Jennifer, although you were born in London and then spent quite a lot of your time in, in Edinburgh and now you're back in London, do you consider yourself a Londoner? I guess I do. I mean, as much as I belong anywhere, yes. Yeah, I was born in in the centre of London, yes. Notting Hill Gate, and lived there until I was three, and then we moved to Wimbledon. And in fact, um, when we lived in this flat right in the centre of Notting Hill Gate, we had something like five bus routes going past our door. Oh, did you? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I grew up with... London fumes, I guess. Um, and uh, the, there's a family story, actually, that we went to visit my aunt and uncle who were living in a very rural village in Crete at that time where they had no cars and people went around on donkeys. Right. And there was just one bus a week passing the village. My goodness. And apparently I was very unhappy for most <laughs> of the time, having to do lots of walking and occasionally <laughs> yes. get a ride on a donkey. And the one time that I would look happy and I'd jump up and down is when I would see the one bus going <laughs> past and I'd say traffic jam Traffic at, jam at that point. So presumably I felt at home at that point. <laughs> so yes, I guess London's in my, in my blood. In your blood, a definite London girl. Mm. You can take the girl out of London. Yes. <laughs> but you can't take the London or the London bus out of the girl. Yes, <laughs> I guess that's, I think London, London has so much, you know, there's yeah. so much history and different cultures and um, there's, there's a sense of excitement and um, but grittiness as well. So, so having been brought up partially on, on the south, in the south of London you're very much a North London. No, I'm a North Londoner I think, yeah. yes. north of the river. Politically. Politically <laughs> North London as well. Yeah. Um, yes and it's closer to Cambridge where I have to commute to of so course, I have to so be this makes side. Sense to Unless you want a really long commute, you, yes. you go from King's Cross I do, yeah. by the train. It's a very quick commute, actually. Do, yes. In fact, it's a nice a day trip, isn't it, to, to go up to King's Cross from, from London? Yes, visiting. less than an hour on the train. Yeah. Okay, um, so here we're coming into an open bit of grassy yes, land. So I don't know here. if you want to go up to Ham uh, Parliament Hill or kind of the most direct way to Kenwood. Uh, that's, I'd love to go up Parliament Hill. Okay. I haven't been up because you get a fantastic view from the you do from the top I, there. I love going up any hills or mountains. It's my favourite <laughs> activity. <laughs> I actually find my mood lifting just being on the summit of anything. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, growing up in Scotland for sort of your formative years, shall we say, did you do much walking in in Scotland? Yes, yes, we were a part of a. Um, a little walking group to do with my father's office, mm -hmm. solicitor's office, hill walking group. So we went every month to to some mountain in the Highlands. You could get to Perthshire or the mountains around there. Yes. In an hour and a half. Yes, that's right. Um, so we we did. I don't know. I've done most of the Munros that are within easy access of Edinburgh. Have you? The mountains over three thousand feet. And do you have a favourite? Um, do I have a favourite? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I guess I've done Ben Laws more than any other, but um, uh, 
put you on the spot there. Yes, you have. <laughs> you have. I mean, my, my, um, I have this uh, tradition that every significant birthday I have to go up a mountain because okay. it's so important to me. Right. So it's not um, every birthday, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> every birthday well, is significant. It's every birthday. It's good, but every birthday with a kind of round number. Okay. Every decade. Yes, is uh, extremely, is extremely important. important. Yes. So um, my last significant birthday. Yes. Um, I actually went up a mountain which isn't a Munro, but was a long-held ambition to go up. So it is one of my favourite mountains, just because it's so dramatic, even yes. though it's not a Munro or even a Corbett. Okay, what's a Corbett? A mountain between 2,500 and 3,000 feet. Wow, okay. So actually it's oh, pretty it's low, I mm. mean, you know, <laughs> in the European scale of things. Yes, yes. Um, but it's called Sylvan. Mm -hmm. It's way up in Sutherland, kind of close to Loch Inver is the closest okay. little town. And it rises like some sort of prehistoric beast out of the moorland. I mean, completely bizarre rock formation, really, really sheer. Yes. Um, so it's so exciting to see. And to get there, it's very remote, so you have to walk for four hours over midge-infested bog <laughs> <laughs> um, to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, yes. Um, and it's uh, very swampy underfoot and so on. And then you start ascending this really sheer uh, mountain yes for about an hour or something wow and you get to this kind of yeah it's like a kind of dinosaur humpback shape yes and from the top you can see the whole coastline of the northwest oh wow it's very beautiful i don't think i've ever actually been to sutherland which is uh i must get it's there it's really it's, it's very dramatic yeah it's so kind of um well it's very wild and i suppose it is midge infect infected infested because <laughs> You can only climb it in kind of in the, the summer, summer, spring, summer. Yes, months. I mean, ideally, you would do it in May before the midges come out. Yes. But the problem is, my birthday's at the end of August. <laughs> so it's peak mid season. Mid season, yes. Yeah, and of course, so. it, it would defeat the purpose if you went before. Or no, exactly. Indeed. In I fact, I think on the last birthday, we did it on the 29th because we wanted to make sure we got it in. Before, so, <laughs> um, and the mid-season, when does it end? Is it October? I think it's starting to die down by, by September. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we did Torridon. We were in Torridon two years ago in September and uh, on bad, you know, kind of uh, rainy days or very still days, it was very midgy. But yeah. then on the, we did a fantastic climb of Ben Allegan, which is another favorite mountain. Absolutely stunning. Um, uh, again, sheer up, but it is that is a Munro. You get two Munros actually okay. in the climb. In the climb, um, and like all the mountains in the northwest, you start more or less from sea level. Okay. So it, you do your full three thousand feet yes, of ascent, yeah, yes. and they're all really sheer up. Right. Which makes them hard, but also very dramatic. Yes. Yeah. A real sense of achievement when Absolutely. you get to the top as well. Yes. And are they are there trails, or are you are you literally walking through scrub? And do you need a map? Um, you definitely map? need a map, yes, because yeah. the weather changes so much, yes. so rapidly there, yeah. that you could or easily, you know, the cloud will bubble up out of nowhere. Yeah, yes. And you, so you need a map to know. Or GPS, yeah. I suppose. Well, now, yes, yeah. I guess. Yes. But, um, so here we are at the top of Parliament Hill. Um, it's a bit, a bit of a cloudy, hazy day, but we have a good view of the Shard rising out of the London skyscape there. Yes. 
And there's so I, many new buildings that I just don't recognise. Or I mean, I can see I the, the walkie-talkie and the very ugly square block. Modern, but and like I think we came up here one very wet, boggy, well, it was very muddy walking up here for the for the fireworks at New Year one. Yes. Apart from the trees, you've got to <laughs> choose your choose your place well because otherwise you don't see the fireworks for the trees but no but exactly. this year there aren't going to be any fireworks so so I learned oh really I'm not doing the fireworks that. this year yeah um, um, yes now we often come to just below the trees we come up the hill and you can actually get a pretty good view from yes. below the trees yeah that makes sense um, of the horizon without all the crowds yes but still a real sense of uh, festivity and a lot of people in good mood up here <laughs> yes. So from here, the top of Parliament Hill, we're going to walk. Yeah, so we're looking over towards Highgate there. With um, oh, that's right. Highgate. Marks buried there. Highgate Cemetery. Um, and in fact, when I came out at uh, Hampstead Heath Station, I didn't realise that Keats lived here. Yes. So no wonder you live in this area, <laughs> Jennifer. Yes. So let's so. let's talk a little bit about that. So your your life you want, took you. Do you want to head over this way? Yeah. Uh, your your life took you to to uh, from Edinburgh to Cambridge University to study classics, classics. originally, and then I changed to English literature mm -hmm. for the second half of my degree. And I did my PhD on Shelley and Romantic Hellenism, so Shelley in Greece, yes, um, and and also the other Romantics, Keats and Byron. Yes. So yes, I like all that era of English literature, the idealism of the poets. Mm -hmm. who thought that poetry could change the world mm -hmm. and who reinvested the natural landscape with a kind of spiritual sense and um, were caught up with the ideas of the French Revolution and then they all died young before they could um, get cynical. <laughs> Has that actually led you or encouraged you to write poetry yourself? Uh, no, I did. I used to write poetry when I was a teenager, mm -hmm. and uh, in fact, I actually thought I started double bass lessons when I was sixteen or seventeen, mm -hmm. and um, I had to pay for the lessons myself. And I had this great idea that I could earn the money for the lessons by selling my poems to the Scotsman newspaper. Yes. So I sent them off very enthusiastically and of course nothing happened. Oh dear. <laughs> I was so naive. <laughs> and so I ended up doing a newspaper round instead. Oh, right. <laughs> Delivering the, the newspapers, not published in them. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, so now I just uh, analyse poetry, mm -hmm. um, you know, as part of my job. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, write non-fiction and fiction yes. instead rather than poetry. So you're, after completing your PhD you were offered a post or had you already been offered a post at, at Cambridge while you were doing your PhD? Uh, I got just towards the end of it I got a junior research fellowship which is like a postdoc yes. position for three years and, um, and so with that kind of in place I went off to Greece for two months with um, Byron's letters in my printed out in my rucksack, and we yeah. tried to follow Byron's footsteps through Greece. Yes, we were partly following um, the footsteps of Byron, particularly through Epirus, which is northwest Greece, up towards the Albanian border. Yes, um, walking through the Pindus Mountains, 
where Byron had uh, walked with, um, at that point, the only maps you could get of Greece because they were very kind of careful about security. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have ordnance survey maps that you could buy in shops easily. Yes. You had to go to a special office in Athens and get a massive map that was about that size on a, you know, like, like a metre long. A metre long, yes. Um, on a big piece of um, sort of hardened uh, paper. Yes. And we rolled it up and had it on the back of our rucksacks like like a sort of medieval scroll that <laughs> uh, you'd unroll when yes you, when, you, when you felt you were not sure you were going in the right direction exactly and the Fantastic. main the main danger were the sheepdogs which were really fierce yes and they, uh, are. they still are in greece yes. yeah bred to keep off mountain lions or something yeah and you had to go around walking with a stick to kind of fend off the dogs yeah, yes and i'm very scared of dogs so it's then we also climbed Mount Taygetos, which is the highest mountain in the in the Peloponnese. Okay. For, which took about three days because this was July, August, so midges weren't the problem, but the heat, heat was the problem. Yes, yes. So you could only walk for about three hours in the early morning and then three hours in the kind of late afternoon and then find a shady tree or something to yes. hide out in the rest of the day. So um, in in the Peloponnese, it's it's a number of kind of um, fingers as well, isn't yes. it? Yes. And w- so which so that that was the other thing we did was um, to follow also the footsteps of Patrick Lee, Lee Fermor. I wondered whether you... and he wrote this really great book called the Marnie, yes. which is the the middle prong yes. of the Peloponnese. I used to sell it in the shop. In fact, <laughs> I sold quite a few copies of that. Yeah. So. Um, Yes, so we did. We walked all round there. Yes, sleeping on beaches, yes. little caves or coves. And it's beautiful that that area. I love it. It it's is very um, the colours as well of of the a very dramatic, almost um, in in the summer, a very harsh, dry landscape, and then these the blue sky and the and the uh, the sunsets were incredible. Yes, and the, yeah, and. The, and at the end of this great walking tour that you did, what, what was the aim? F- f- to write something? The, the aim was to, yeah, in a way, get a sense of the landscapes that had inspired these writers. Yeah. And maybe we were sort of interested in the borders, so all the coastlines, the borders of northern Greece, yes. the bits going towards Albania, or we actually went to the island of Samothraki, which oh, is the yes. closest to um, Turkey, and climbed the highest mountain on Samothraki. Oh, well done. Also from sea time. level, because <laughs> well we were camping on the beach. Yeah, so, yeah, yes. Um, that was a getting up in the dark, Yes. walking with torches to start with. Yeah, fantastic. Yes, I didn't have time to do that because I was there with my car, little car. Right, yes. yes. So, um, actually, it's no, a, I wasn't. I left the car in Alexandropoli and then took the boat across to Samothraki. I love it is again it was so hot though literally um you couldn't do anything in the in during the day it was just impossible yes just from the heat of the sun but unlike some of the other islands there are water sources there are different springs that's true so it's wooded and places so well done for walking to the the top there and of course there's the um it's that they are the uh the ancient um gods that were in contention with the the gods of Olympia, the Samothraki, right, ancient the, gods. Yes, I, don't know, I forget. Mother, mother goddess. Yes, 
So from from this uh, adventure, you then began working at at Cambridge. Yes. So becoming more of a, a professional academic. Yes. And, um, and and that that role from being student and having that freedom to explore and research in the way you had done to suddenly being on the other side of the of the uh, of the lectern shall we say you're, you're you're actually giving the lectures rather than listening to the lectures yes how, how um well i think i've always i mean partly if you're an academic in some ways you are a perpetual student <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, so I don't think I've ever lost that sense of curiosity yes. or the um, desire to actually not just confine my research to the library, but yeah. um, go to places that are connected with the writing and um, interview people and make um, a sort of attention to the world calibrate or get calibrated with the attention to the text yes yes so so yes the, the PhD was turned into a book on Shelley and Greece right but my next book was on um, archaeology and the imagination yes and for that I realized that I couldn't just read about archaeology and sort of uh, in theory I actually had to get my hands dirty and so I went on some archaeological digs that's right you went to Belize did you yes right. I had this great idea of myself as a sort of Indiana Jones <laughs> and what was the reality of The that? reality was much more prosaic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wasn't kind of discovering a new temple hacking through the <laughs> jungle with my machete. We were on a, in a field excavating this domestic site yes. called Baking Pot. Um, and yes, in the course of the week I uncovered the, the corner of a house foundation. Oh, I well think. done. Okay, so you <laughs> felt you'd, you've achieved something. But because they knew I was writing a a book, um, I was allowed to leave Baking Pot one day and go and see this cave which the chief archaeologist had explored the year before, Yes, um, which had just been featured in National Geographic, which they thought, well the, the, the thinking is that it was the Mayan entrance to the underworld, or oh, one wow. of the Mayan entrances okay. to the underworld. So we actually had to, um, it was very Indiana Jones stuff, we had to walk through the jungle to get there. Yes with a, um, a Mayan guide who um, had his machete and led the way. And uh, we, we, we passed this Père de Lance snake curled up on the, on the path getting there. And he held it down with his, the, the neck down with his machete so I could look at it. And, and then he cut its head off. Oh my goodness, okay. Um, Otherwise it probably... It was one of the 10 deadliest snakes. Okay. What's it called? Père de Lance. Père de Lance, okay. And then we got to the got to the entrance of the cave where there's a, a river it's a there's a river kind of running through it yes and we had to swim into the cave fully clothed with our climbing boots on and everything and and hard hats with lights on so yeah. we could see and you Why kind of swam into this cave for about I don't know 30 minutes or or more and then kind Crikey. of clambering over rocks with with water and then finally got to a kind of place where you could climb out of the river yes. onto a kind of natural shelf and um, and then we took our boots off because it was so delicate in terms of the archaeology yes and you're just kind of padding through on in your socks with um, starting to see pots and unlike a normal 
excavation where the pots are all in pieces yes. because they'd been in this cave forever. They were intact yeah. from you know, 800 AD or they were preserved within that uh, uh, a climate. A, yes, a exactly. Yeah. And then at the very end, there was, we came to this whole skeleton that was probably a sacrifice. Oh, gosh. Yeah. My goodness, what an experience. And do you know what's happened to that site since? Has it, has it well, been, I um, think they can't. It's too delicate to, you to know, make it available to the, to no, the public. So. No. But what um, an experience. Uh, ah. Yes. Yes. So did that play a part in, uh, in the That came book? into the book, a yes. little bit in the book. And I know we, we went on a bit of a, an adventure to, uh, to Turkey as well for that book, didn't we? To yes. Troy. Yes. So one of the chapters was on, was on Troy, the whole history of Schliemann digging it up. But even prior to that, the debate about where Troy was. Because yes. if you remember, there's now the place where all the archaeology is uh, focused, which mm. is Hisselik, which yes. is Schliemann's site. But in the 18th century, they thought that the Troy was somewhere else, Bunabashi. Mm -hmm. And we actually went to the village. Do you remember where yes, um, that's right. the local people were very keen to show us their little kind of tumulus that yes. was Bunabashi. Yes, yeah, yes. Oh. All I remember, Jennifer, is that wherever we went, Byron seemed to be with us. <laughs> <laughs> I remember standing on a mound and you were convinced, you, you said that this had something to do with Byron. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> yes. So this is, that's, that is now known as um, Achilles' tomb. It's this huge kind of uh, tumulus. Yes. Um, and uh, that was was always thought to have been Achilles' tomb. It's on the plain of Troy, so it's down on the plain below Hisselik. Yes, yes. And it was always thought to have been Achilles' tomb right back to Alexander the Great's time. Because yeah. when Alexander was there, you know, the Trojan War was already over a thousand years in the past. Yeah, yes. Uh, so already myths and legends had accrued around the whole place. Yes. And he... Um, visited this tomb and sacrificed there before he continued his campaign across Asia Minor, thinking he was, a, you know, propitiating the ghost of Achilles. Yes. Um, okay. And uh, in the 18th century, people continued to think it was Achilles. And actually, in 1790, they started, they actually supposedly excavated it under the French authorities and, and said that they'd found you know, this urn with the, with the ashes of Achilles, but nobody could produce the, the actual evidence. They right. only had a copy of it, which immediately kind of... The British, because of the British-French conflict at the time, the British immediately poured scorn on the French idea that this was the bones of Achilles. Right. And so, there were, so Byron went to visit it in 1811, 1810, mm -hmm. 1811, and um, wrote in his diary that he used to think that you know he was if he went there that he would be you know visiting the bones of Achilles but now because of the British scepticism of the French excavation potentially that mound was empty instead of pregnant with the historical past okay <laughs> so I wanted to see it That's but right. if you remember the chief archaeologist he was skeptical about it because you know there's no kind of archaeological factual thing there but to me the important thing was the stories that have been told about it over the years yeah yes over yeah. the centuries the millennia so um he eventually agreed to let one of his students who was called Seamus I don't know if you remember oh that's right which I thought was very interesting because Seamus Heaney's opening poem in 
one of his best collections is called Digging. So this idea that this Turkish student called Seamus would show us a mound which people had dug yes. uh, was just too good to be true. But anyway, um, we went, so we went there to, to see it because it was the place of yeah, that Byron had visited and, um, and there's so many people in the past had visited and was so important. Yeah, yeah, yes. Oh, well, there we go. I had actually forgotten. All I could remember was the mound and, and Byron. And, <laughs> and you got, I think I kind of lost right. track of I mean, one the of the things with archaeology is the gulf between the stories and so on and the kind of prosaic reality yes, of all true. you see in front of you. Which, which is what your book is all about, isn't yes. it? The, the digging, digging the dirt. Exactly. Um, and our reality was being completely eaten alive by mosquitoes. Do you remember where we were? Yes, well, we were sleeping out because it was too hot in the hotel, so yes. we slept out on the on the balcony. Yes, it was like a kind of a and motel lodge. We got woken lodge, by the muezzin at five in the morning, but then we we started having to get up even before the muezzin had done his first call exactly. to prayer. <laughs> so we had to go to the archaeology site for a six a.m. breakfast yes. or something. Early, well, because it was or so hot, earlier. they would have yeah. to do their work before 10 almost, didn't they? Yes. No, because I, I, I also went on a dig in Israel as part of that research for that uh, book. Mm -hmm. And um, there we used to, well, we would get up at 20 past five and start work at six and then stop for breakfast at 8.30. Right. Uh, and, um, and then work for another two hours and then have a watermelon break and then we were finished by by one yes uh, um which you know when the day got to its hottest yeah yes and then there'd be a siesta and then you'd uh, wash pottery at four which was always my favorite time of the day because i'd have a cup of tea and i'd just have my hands in some nice cold water <laughs> keeping cool <laughs> and chat to people while i kind of Kind of lazily kind of rubbed a bit of shard of pottery. <laughs> From this book, Digging the Dirt, where did the inspiration or the idea come to write about digging digging up Milton? Because this this is an this is a very interesting story which is sort of based part based on fact and fiction all mingled together. Exactly. In, and set in London as exactly, well. Exactly, yes. Yes. Well I came across a story actually when I was doing research for the archaeology book. Um, one of the chapters in the archaeology book, the Digging the Dirt book, is yes. on digging up bodies. And so as part of that, I came across this pamphlet in the British Library telling the story of the disinterment of Milton's tomb in 1790. Milton so, being a poet as Milton well, being the poet, uh, author of Paradise Lost, who had died over 100 years previously. Yes. Um, but people in this church had known that he was supposed to have been buried there and when the church was undergoing some renovation they took the opportunity to kind of search out for his coffin and then um, according to the pamphlet there's a number of them went back and kind of couldn't resist the curiosity of looking inside and then actually started kind of ransacking the body for for relics or souvenirs Mm -hmm. And that's actually when the pamphlet, which is only about 20 pages long, that's when the pamphlet came to an end, with the story kind of half told. And I was really curious about what happened next, yeah. you know, what happened to the bits afterwards. And anyway, who were these people who had done this and what was their motivation? Yes. yes. Um, and so it became a novel, which is told in 12 chapters mirroring the 12 books of Paradise Lost. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a deconstruction of Milton. Yep. metaphorically and literally 
um, and uh, all told from the perspective of uh, one of the one of the people who who was involved in the um, selling of relics. And was this somebody that a, a character that you imagined, or was it based on? Uh, it's the actually fact based on a couple of lines in the pamphlet. This woman okay. is mentioned guarding the church yeah. after the body had been disinterred. Yes. Um, and but yes, the rest of it is is my imagination. Yes. So, and how she gets fleshed out as a character as um, someone who can't read or write, but is very good with maths and physics and a great business sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And did you base the character on? On someone you you knew, or on imagination, no, or from she, other another book, or it was it was no, um, it was my imagination really. I mean, it's, it's told in her voice from 1790. So I read, and I teach novels from the 18th century, and so certain novels like Mole Flanders by Daniel Defoe, yes, or um, uh, Fanny Hill by John Cleland. These are first person narratives. Uh, by female characters, so yes. they they kind of influenced me. Okay, so you had you had a baseline almost to to go from, yes. on which to base your, uh, a character. Yeah, but I think with yeah writing fiction, you you have to get a sense of the voice. Once you have the voice in your head, then um, it starts to sort of write itself. Yeah. So this this brings me on. There's two worlds of Cambridge, isn't there? Because there's like there's the University of Cambridge. And then there's the uh, the various houses, Is colleges. Colleges, sorry. Yeah, the various colleges, like Peterhouse, which is the house that you're attached to. That's right. So, so you're employed by Peterhouse College. Primarily, yes. Yes, rather than by the by the university. That's right. Yes. I find this a really fascinating. There's two almost two tiers to how the university operates. Yes. Is that a historical thing? That, that, in, that historically it was the colleges that employed? Um, uh, well, the colleges are the oldest, the, I mean, the, the oldest aspect of the university. I don't actually know. Okay. <laughs> but Peter <laughs> Which House is, kind of Peter but, but, is the oldest college. Yes. yes. And, and it was the last college to actually um, admit women as well. Uh, second right? last. Second last, okay. Yes. But yes, it was founded in 1284. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, and it started admitting women in 1986. Okay, so it's very recent, it really, is. isn't it? It is. Yes, and I there mean, aren't many of us in the on the you know the faculty side. Yeah, even yeah. Now, yes, because I I was very I would call myself quite privileged in the, in the end getting a uh, a bursary to do my masters, and I was at Peterhouse as well. But yes. that was in ninety yikes late nineties. 96 was it 97 97 98 so still actually relatively and i didn't appreciate that it was relatively uh new to 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 now obviously there's more and more women there are at at the uh, undergraduate uh graduate level yeah still in the faculty level it's very uh few yeah and and in in terms of english as a as a um as a degree, is that still a very popular degree to do, or how are you promoting it as a as a degree to do? Yes, um, well, it, I or think it study, is. I, say. Um, I mean, it, I don't think that uh, the humanities are so much under under attack in Cambridge as other universities 
worldwide. Mm. Um, so, and still, people are very keen to study it at school. Yes, yeah. So we still have a you know large number of of applicants. Okay, coming through. And, uh, yes, and people people go on from studying English to go into the theatre or publishing or a lot of people change to law so they've done an interesting degree to start with and then they then they get vocational afterwards yes um, yeah so there's the, uh, a whole range of things people do yeah yeah, yeah. kind of rich seam of um, comedians coming out of um, Cambridge as well so a couple of my students have become quite good quite well-known comedians. Have they? Called comic writers. Okay. Are we allowed to know who they were? Well, John Finnamore. Okay, one. yes. Freddie Cyborn. I will have to look <laughs> um, But that's, I mean, that's great to see that, that also that comedy, comedy uh, lives on, as it were. Yes. In, especially in Which is kind of like funny this. because my main specialty now is tragedy. I was going to say, is, <laughs> and how did that come about? That um, Well, I, I've always... Uh, taught the compulsory course in tragedy for third years at Cambridge because um, it incorporates both Shakespeare but also Greek tragedy as I started as a classicist and my yes. researchers on classics and English together yeah it made sense to teach that paper and I'm interested in Greek tragedy but um, because I'm always interested in how literature relates to the world, and as I said, I'm not content to just stay in the library, yeah. tragedy seems to be the literary form which is most interested in how it relates to world events or mm-hmm. you know, uh, terrible experiences, sorrows, catastrophes in the world. So it yeah. has a kind of ethical side to it, which yes. I've always responded to. So, um, yeah, so that's my latest, the, the latest two books I've published right three books I've published. And, and in fact so, um, yes so the latest I, I published the tra- introdu- Cambridge introduction to tragedy in 2007 but mm-hmm. then um, 2019 I published the um, tragedy since 9-11 reading a world out of joint which is basically on the events of the last 20 years read through the the kind of lens of traditional tragedy so yeah 9-11 and lament the Iraq war and revenge tragedy and finishing up with the final chapter on climate change mm-hmm. um, and ti- tragic time and can you have non-human tragedy is it tragic if we lose all the coral reefs or there are no tasmanian frogs left you know, that kind of thing yes and has it sparked debate your book putting that out there or have you have you been able to take it chapter by chapter and almost have a, a debate on each yeah, I've published articles, sort of spin-off articles about climate change, for example, or on the... I gave a talk on the refugee crisis and tragedy. But I now realise that there's a missing final chapter. Oh! <laughs> um, in that, you know, it was published in 2019 and to March 2020. Of course, We yes. all went into yes. COVID lockdown. Yes, so yes. I'm actually... That's one of the things I'm doing at the moment, is preparing to write the the sequel, as it were, the next chapter right. on, on plague and okay. tragedy oh, wow, and the ways in which we mourn yes. and, and how that's been disrupted by uh, COVID. I mean, precisely what you can't do yes. yeah, under yeah. COVID. So. And when is that due to come uh, out? Then? Well, I have to give a big lecture on it in 
Tbilisi, Georgia next July. So that's the kind of goal and then, yeah. then I'll publish it afterwards. Okay, well, good luck with that. Do you get depressed by when you're, when you're actually, not research, well, I suppose researching and writing about it, does it pull you, how do you manage to say positive, stay cheerful? Stay cheerful? Yes, it's a good, good question. <laughs> um, somehow it makes me feel less depressed actually confronting it than, than ducking away from it. Okay. I get really depressed when people kind of get escapist and, and, and try not to talk about things. Yes, yeah. <laughs> There's a route we could do that is slightly more rural down over the bridge yes, there let's and I do don't that. think it's too muddy okay. otherwise this is the let's, M1 let's to, um, <laughs> the M1 to Kenwood House let's go the more rural scenic route okay. shall we this I'm is sure Robert's my... favourite frisbee field oh so is it the one okay. that he uh, snuck into <laughs> so actually that well that nicely leads us on to the work that you have been doing with with Robert your, your husband through the years as a He's a, a photojournalist by trade. Yes. Um, and, and through your collaborations with you doing you writing and he taking photographs, you've gone to a number of, uh, of very interesting countries. But the one that really stands out for me is your trip and the project in India. Yes. And uh, if you'd like to talk a little bit about that, let our podcast listeners know oh, yes. of that story. Yes. Well, we've been to this area of India twice now uh, to to research this this investigation into the tribal cultures Adivasi cultures in this area Jharkhand which is west of Calcutta northeast India yes, yes. Um, which is traditionally an area where there are a lot of pre-Hindu tribal peoples with their animist yes uh, culture but like many indigenous peoples around the world they suffer what's known as the resource curse in that the land on which they've lived for millennia is full of all the minerals that India now wants for its development so it's where all the coal deposits huge number amount of coal iron ore uranium uh, various other things are, are there concentrated in yeah. that land yes and now international companies but but also within India Tata Steel, for example, um, moving in there and mining or industrialising and the indigenous people don't have any paper documentation to their land because they haven't needed it for millennia yeah. and they just get displaced, displaced from their land and the, and the old customs, the old traditions and, and the villages and so on are, are being eradicated. And so we went there in 2000 and five, six, and then again in 2010 mm -hmm. to visit different villages and areas of this state and talk to people and photograph them, you know, from all, all perspectives. Yeah, yes. And then, and you then had it a... resulted in a big exhibition. Yes, at the, at the SOAS. Yes. yes, exactly. Which was, um, um, and which was a huge success, I think. Well, and I, just also just a huge success in the sense that of, of bringing a greater awareness to to what's happening in parts of the world that that otherwise we would not have any idea about and and although as individuals we may not be able to do anything it, it's a collective understanding and knowledge helps to spread the word of what of how careful we have to be and be more aware of also what's going on in our world as well well yes i mean actually you know we're all interconnected because a lot of the companies 
that are industrialising in this way in, um, in India are registered on the London Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. So, yes, actually, there is a way in which people in the, in the West can do something about that yeah, yes. in terms of their investments. And what- uh, but also, yes, various pressures. There, there are uh, charities and NGOs that are working there. But, mm-hmm. um, and pressure groups as well. Yes. As, we, as part of the exhibition, we um, also involved the artwork of tribal women artists from um, Hazarabag in the north of Jharkhand. Yes. Um, and they were kind of their artwork was interspersed amongst the photographs. Right. And at the opening, we we brought some of the artists over for the opening. That's right. Yes. Um, and and art has almost become a, a form of activism mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. as well as you know the work is being done to preserve it. I still keep in touch with the with the activists that we worked with there. Yes. And um, they're starting to um, commercialise the artwork in ways which I think is very interesting. You know, so they're, they're making kind of wallpaper or curtains or, you know, that kind of thing to, yeah. to uh, well, to bring money to the community, but also to make the art better known in Delhi or, or yes. whatever, which is all helpful as well, I think. And in terms of the communities that have been displaced, has this all, is this all helping to, to protect them in some ways? Or, I mean, what is happening to those communities? I suppose it's 10 years since you were last it's there. 10 years so. since I was last there, yes. Um, well, uh, I mean, you know, we've just had COP26 in which India changed the wording at the, the final hour and um, agreed only to phase down coal rather than phase out coal Mm -hmm. and having seen coal mines in Jharkhand from both the huge ones that were funded by the World Bank to the tiny illegal artisanal mines which are hugely dangerous for the people who work in them. People go down in flip-flops with a pickaxe. My goodness. Um, And uh, the Villages then rely on tiny scraps of coal that they pick off the slag heaps as their their one source of energy for cooking and heating and so on because all the trees which they traditionally use for firewood have been cut down because yeah. all their woods have been eradicated to make way for the mine. So all they, na- they now live as scavengers around the edge of the mine which is taking place where their village once was yeah. stood and where their goats raised and so on yeah yeah yeah. Um, so you can understand that actually you know the poorest people are now dependent on the the sort of residue of coal that gets tossed out on the slag heaps yeah yeah yes so I'm, I'm not sure that it's going to be phased out anytime soon mm, mm-hmm. but it it could be I mean with the, the other in between this work on um, on Jharkhand we actually also went a separate year to Rajasthan to visit the Barefoot College set up by Bunker Roy, which actually empowers villages. Is this the right way again? Yes. Okay. And um, there they, for example, train Dalit women to make and repair solar lanterns and solar cookers. Okay. And then they use these solar lanterns to be able to teach rural girls at night schools because they can't go to school during the day because they have to go and look after the animals. So a lot yeah. of the girls were getting uneducated. Yeah. But then yeah. they go to the night schools after their day's work, so it's really tough, but lit by these solar lanterns. And so 
the the barefoot college was such a example of hope and, and what you could do with with solar energy which of course india has a lot of yes um and also decentralized because it's it's the most powerless in the normal social hierarchy of uh, people in the community, the Dalit women, who are then given the power to to lead this technological revolution. So if they could do that in Jharkhand yeah, yeah. and decentralise everything instead of it all, you know, the coal mines shipping the coal to power stations that light up Delhi, mm-hmm. don't light up the local villages, yeah. then life would be very different. Yeah, yeah, yes. But these small steps are... I hope empowering other small communities into realizing what they can do also to like yes. locally well actually to... I mean so the, the barefoot college movement is being exported worldwide so when we were there we met people who'd come in from Bolivia okay. to be trained at this place oh, wow. and they've also trained people in Kenya I think right um, so oh, yes, right. it's, it's been fantastic. I'll, I shall look them up because I haven't actually I haven't heard of them as a movement. But it's just yes, it's just whether it can work in industrial areas which have the resource curse of having the minerals. I yes. mean, the good the, the Rajasthan works because it's a desert, so there's nothing anyone wants there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. They can, so they can, you know, they can allow these villages to. Um, Ooh, bit boggy around here. Hang on, I take a bit of a body swerve around here. So we're walking across the uh, the meadow, I suppose, meadowland or the green acreage in front of Kenwood House, which is well, this an is supposed heritage. to be a this landscape is... garden by Cape of I, I'm sure there's there's meant to be a ha ha somewhere. Yes, <laughs> but the ha ha is the swampy. fact that it's a bit. Where has it gone? And and also, I in my heady days of living in Haringey many uh, decades ago when I first was in London. This is where it used to come up to this part because in the, in the summer they used to have the, um, the summer concert so you just come up with a picnic. Yes. And those, I think in, initially, it was actually a free thing or it was very, very well, uh, you could cheap just put to your just... picnic the other side of the fence. Exactly, and... <laughs> put your picnic rug out and, and uh, bring your food. And the music was amazing. Look at the colours there over there and that, all those orange leaves and yeah. russet coloured leaves all just dropped in front of the tree. So as well as India, you, you've been to Greece and to Japan and in fact I think I met you, in, you and Robert in uh, Croatia too on an right. island doing, a, doing a, um, a collaboration there. But, yes. but from these, these trips that you've done to various places around the world, have, has it, obviously it's very exciting, but do you get so involved in the story you don't actually get a chance to enjoy where you are or are you able to to be able to compartment the working side and then the uh, the enjoyment side yes i mean you know the jarkin story wasn't exactly enjoyable no. because it's quite harrowing um some some parts of it you see the the conditions in which people live and i remember one point we went to this village to interview a mother who's Adivasi teenage boy had been beaten to death in the police cells the night before. Oh my goodness! And I had to interview her in front of the whole village. Crikey! And um, I couldn't, I, I, because I'm not a hardened journalist, I couldn't do it without crying. No. Um, but um, but yes, there was parts of the story we did in Rajasthan where the kind of commitment of the people from Barefoot College and the women who were 
you know, learning from them and, and doing rainwater harvesting or whatever it was, was so moving that you were kind of in tears from the, just the sort of the humanity of it all. So, yes, yes. But yeah, on the whole, I would say that when you go to a place and you've got a kind of mission like this and you, and you have interviews, so, you know, you're talking to people from all sort of points of the spectrum. Yes. So you're going not as a tourist but you're becoming an insider, you're getting inside the story, talking to all these people, I think you get so much more out of it than if you just go as a tourist. Definitely, yes. Um, and, uh, um, and there's a sort of point to you being there. Yes, yes. Um, so, so I think we, on the whole, I mean, just occasionally, when I'm, because I would do a lot of these stories with, with Robert, my husband, yeah. who's taking photos, and he always seems to be taking photos when it's sunset. And that's when very occasionally I'd like to sit in a cafe with him, drink a cocktail in the sunset and just live instead of see the world through a camera lens. (laughs) I sometimes feel I'm, you know, a camera widow or whatever. For his Condé Nast moments. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So we've arrived at Kenwood House, which actually I haven't been inside for many years, but this is English heritage property. Yes, so all this Kenwood estate is not part of... Hampstead Heath. It's not covered by the 1871 Hampstead Heath Act. Right. It's a separate organisation. And this, this was owned by Lord Mansfield, set up by the Mansfield Estate, whose okay. main claim to fame was that he was the person who made this very important judgment in the, in the 18th century, which paved the way to the ending of slavery in Britain. Oh right, I, did, mm. I didn't know that. So um, although his, his wealth came partly from his plantations in the West Indies that had slaves, so yes. he himself is a very ambiguous, complex character, uh, character <laughs> that was a, a great, important achievement on yeah. his, yeah, on yeah. his yeah. part. And we've just coming up to the, um, they're raking the, the leaves off the pathway and I mean, here we are, we've got yes. this, a huge cafe, so we should stop and have a, a nice cup of tea, I think. I think, think that would be good, <laughs> yeah. Before we, before we stop here, talking about writings and everything, do you have a favourite place that you like to go to, to go and write? Well, I used to, I don't know whether I should do product placement or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I used to go to Co- Costa Coffee in, in Belsize Park a lot. And, yeah. um sit there for hours and write yes and um i've been missing that with lockdown going out i mean i've just been writing at home and that felt very different yes because your time is very much split between london and cambridge so yes. and with all the lovely uh, wonderful libraries in cambridge i take it do you need to differentiate your professional life as a as a lecturer and a, a doctor of english and doctor of english yes, yes. literature literature and, and then your professional life as, a, as an author. I think I do, yes. Yeah. I think it's really that, that living in London um, gives me that distance yes. and, um, and another reality. Mm-hmm. And I tend to think of Cambridge as just where I work, uh, you know, for teaching and so on. And then London, I come back and I write. Yes. And uh, I used to go to the British Library a lot, of course. Too. Yes, which is a beautiful space yeah. to... Nice, nice, calm space to go in and write. Yes. In fact, I've got my copy of Driving Tito, which I have to take to the British Library. Oh, <laughs> I've been told, I've been sent numerous letters saying, why haven't you brought it? 
Because ah. apparently you have to... Um, what, you take your book? Take your book. Oh, you've right. got an ISBN, you've got to submit oh, it. Right. Yes. So, I've never done that. So I was going to do that after... I thought that they, they, it was their job to acquire it, not your job to Well, that would be nice. It. <laughs> that would be nice. Maybe they'll buy it from me when I get there. Or you need somebody to request it. Yes. And then they would buy it. Yes. Um, and where in London do you go for peace and quiet then? Well, I guess Hampstead Heath. Yes. Um, I mean, although uh, this isn't peace and quiet, my other, my favourite London walk yeah. used to be from Embankment Tube Station to the National Theatre. Okay. Which isn't very long, I know. <laughs> well, do, um, which way would you go? Over the um, Golden Embankment. Jubilee Bridge. Oh, to the National Theatre, of the course. To the National Theatre. Of because, course. I mean, in other words, crossing the river. Yeah, yeah yes. Um, okay. Looking the at that view up the Hungerford river. Hungerford Bridge. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It probably is still the Hungerford Bridge for the, for the trains, but it's yeah. the Jubilee Bridge for but the... Just crossing the river and seeing the skyline and then with the anticipation of the National Theatre at the end. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't have to be about length of, of, uh, or distance when you go somewhere. No. To, it's actually what you see. Yeah, and you see so many different skylines there as well, don't you? Yes. That, that, well, your sunsets and your... And when it's windy, it's quite a... Quite a uh, it's a long walk when it's a windy, windy day. That's true, that's true. Battling against it. Okay, yes. so let's go and stop and have a cup of tea. Yeah. Yeah, one final question. For podcast listeners, um, where can they find out more about you? You've got your your website, Jennifer Wallace, author. .co.uk and that's yes. Wallace W-A-L-L-A-C-E That's right, yes. And it's a little bit moribund though. Don't keep it up. <laughs> don't keep it up. Very but you're I have a, I have a um, Facebook page and also a Twitter. Okay, yeah. and what are your, what are those? Is that Jennifer Wallace? At, uh, at d- Jen- d- J-M-B Wallace 1. Okay. That's my uh, Twitter. Okay, I'll put those in the show notes so anybody who wants to check check out what you're up to and um anything that's more recent they can they can do that there well jennifer thank you so much for talking to me today and now we can get on and have a cup of tea and a piece of cake (laughs) Um, and uh, to all you podcast listeners out there i hope you've enjoyed our chat today as we've walked across the uh, acres of Hampstead heath and ended up at kenwood house if you've enjoyed the show please share it with your friends do subscribe to the traveling through podcast there'll be another one coming out next week but for now take care and Thanks for listening.